0: Welcome to the uphill athlete podcast these programs are just one of several free services we provide to disseminate information about training for mountain sports if you like what you hear and want more please check out our website uphillathlete.com, where you'll find many articles and our extensive video library on all aspects of training for and accomplishing a variety of mountain goals you'll also find our forum where you can ask questions of our experts and the community at large. Our email is coach at uphillathlete.com, and we'd love to hear from you. We've been very pleased and, of course, gratified that our podcasts are being received so enthusiastically. We've had requests to enable a way for listeners to have a conversation about episodes. We certainly welcome this idea and want to encourage those of you who do want to do that to do so on our forum so that the whole Uphill Athlete community can join in and benefit from this exchange. To do so, please start a new thread on the forum using the title of the podcast under the most appropriate category. Thanks for being part of this community. Welcome to another episode of the Uphill Athlete podcast. I'm your host Scott Johnston, co-founder of Uphill Athlete. Today I have the pleasure of talking with Nikki La Rochelle. Nikki is a coach with Uphill Athlete, and she is a schemo racer, a mom of two, and she lives in Breckenridge, Colorado, and has spent two years on the U.S. national team for schemo and racing in Europe. And I think we'll have a fun and interesting conversation about how Nikki balances motherhood with training. And you know some of the lessons she's learned in all these areas, whether it's regarding her family life, but also some tidbits you might have about training. So, welcome, Nikki.
1: Oh thanks, Scott. Yeah. I'm happy to be talking with you.
0: Well, we all we have some fun conversations, so I'm I'm glad we could do this formally and record it. Um, and well, let me start by kind of asking about your athletic background as a kid. And then, you know, what brought you into, to Schemo and you know, the, the kind of the steps that you went through to get there. Uh, because a lot of people I think are intimidated a little bit to get involved in the sport. Um, I mean, it's, it's got some you know, heavy investment in equipment and it looks really hard. Um, and there's a lot of suffering that goes on. And I think the people who, who I can see a lot of the friends I have who are, cross-country skiers would love Schemo because you get to suffer just as much but for a longer time. Um, so I, I think there's a lot to unpack here about Schemo, that, and I don't know that much. So um, take it away. Let me know how you got started and what your background was.
1: Sure. I was not an endurance athlete in my youth. I was a soccer player and not a terribly good soccer player. Um, <laughs> And so sport wasn't really a big part of my upbringing. Um, it wasn't until really I moved to Breckenridge about 14 years ago that I took, began to take endurance sport more seriously. Um, and it was my my husband who got me into schema. And um, as we were just talking about, I started by just being on my Nordic skis or ascending on my Nordic skis with skins. So we cut really little skins, put them on my Nordic skis because I couldn't afford skimo equipment. And at the time, you know, this was 12 years ago, it was really, it was gear that was very difficult to come by. Um, A lot of times you had to order it from Europe. So because I wasn't certain I was invested in doing the sport, this was kind of a, a quick fix and an easy way to test it out. So I'd go skin up on my Nordic skis and had a pretty precarious descent down
0: <laughs> I'm, the, I'm uh, sure you were, I'm sure you would, you would be the, one of the fastest ones up the hill, but maybe not the fastest going back down.
1: Yes, correct. You know, if it was freshly groomed, as you know from all your Nordic experience, it actually could be pretty fun to descend. Like you do these huge sweeping, like side slips down (laughs) but when it wasn't groomed it was really difficult to get down on nordic skis so um that was character building for me
0: um (laughs) let me ask a technical question that maybe not everybody in our audience will appreciate the nuance here were you on skate skis or classic skis
1: Classic skis, yes. Oh my
0: God, that makes this all the more impressive. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, because you know, skate skis actually turn and act a little bit like a downhill ski um, because they're so stiff in the tip. But yeah, skiing downhill and especially in chopped up deep snow on classic skis, yeah, unless you are really good at telemarking, it's really hard to turn those darn skis. They're not meant to turn. They're just meant to go straight.
1: Yes. Yes. One quick tiny story is that I was descending once um, and I I took a bad fall and I actually broke. I was on my husband's. I was dating him at the time. Very, uh, very freshly dating him. We had only gone on a few dates. I was on his pair of classic skis. I ended up breaking one of his classic skis and his buddy came down to help me and he bent down to what I thought would be console me because I was in quite a bit of pain and he grabbed Brad's ski and said, Oh, you broke a ski.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, <So, laughs> cross country yes. skiers tend to fall in love with their skis. And especially when they have, yeah, when they have one of those magic pairs that just like, Oh my gosh, this is a great pair of skis and they'll you know, hang on to them and cherish them. So yeah, that could have ended that relationship right then and there.
1: Yes. That was my Proof fierce it. guy. It, it was a magic pair for him,
0: yeah, that's it was proof, very sad. That's true love, that is definitely true love that you could break this guy's skis and still have him interested in you, so.
1: Yes, I think <laughs> you're right. <laughs> um, so where was I? Oh, so that was the, you know, the modest beginning of my ski mountaineering career and eventually I, I liked it enough, I decided to order gear from Europe and. Um, Let
0: me ask a quick question, did you race ever on that gear?
1: Yes. So one of the first, you see now there's a bunch of municipal series of, um, ascent races or smaller schemo races. Like I, the town of Breckenridge puts on an ascent series. Um, and, and I know other like in Montana and so forth, there's other municipalities that do this. And at the time I think Breckenridge was one of the first and they just did an ascent um, so there was no descent during uh, the race. That, so it was no, just an helpful. uphill race. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So there was a number of us, because the sport again was so new, just on Nordic, this kind of Nordic idea caught on when we threw skins on our our Nordic skis and just descended. And then again, sort of made our way down as best as possible. So yeah, I was racing on the Nordic skis.
0: Yeah. yeah. Cool. And, and then, you, but you did manage to finally to, to decide it was worth investing. And you wanted to do some races that involved downhill as well.
1: Yes, yes. So I got the gear and I started racing and I was really quite bad. I mean, I was in the back of the pack for women. Um, I made so many mistakes. There's so many mistakes to make in schema and I really truly made, I think, every single one. Um, But slowly but surely over the course of many years, I, I got better through pure dedication (laughs) and hard work. So
0: I think learning from, I mean, that's the best teacher is those mistakes. You know, you go, Oh, I should have done such and such with my skis or my skins, or I shouldn't have gone out so hard at that start of that race. And yeah. And those are the lessons that you, and you, you can tell people these things, but until you've experienced some of that stuff yourself, it's really hard to, you know, I, I'm actually kind of working on a little, um solo podcast that I plan to do pretty soon about the mistakes that I made as an athlete and as a climber and you know the so and as there and the commonality that I see other people making these same mistakes and you know you and I as coaches um we're always trying to help people avoid those mistakes that we've made sometimes over and over again, and then finally went, "Oh, damn it! I shouldn't be doing that." Um, but it's so hard to convey that, you know, it, to another person. But once you've had your ass handed to you, so to speak, with a mistake, you go, oh, "Okay, maybe I, maybe I should rethink this thing." So I, I think that's the best. know the school of hard knocks is really the best teacher so i'm sure you got a lot out of that what did you (laughs) i mean when you say you let's give me some idea what some of these mistakes were that you were
1: oh gosh i mean yeah a lot i i have nightmares thinking about looking down at skins falling off my skis so a lot have to do with (laughs) skins properly adhering to skis and taking care of your skins during a race so they don't get too much snow on them, like learning to wipe your, the base of your ski off before you apply a skin after you've done a climb, carrying multiple sets of skins. Um, if a race is particularly long, maybe having three pair of skins. Um, just little mistakes like, like oh, a great one when I very first started was like, I didn't even know how to properly, or in the, in the middle of the race because I had so much adrenaline I didn't lock my boots for the descent. So the, the ankle is not rigid <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. um, and I'm descending. And I, I just, I have that personality that when I have a lot of adrenaline and I'm in a high pressure situation, I tend to just lose sight of what I need to be doing. And this is a mistake or this is a reality. I've learned so much about myself that I have to iron all the details out. So when I'm finally actually doing the race, I'm not having to worry so much about, about getting it right. You know, yeah. um, I'm just, I'm not as thoughtful. I I need to go through the motions over and over again to get it right. So
0: practice makes perfect. And I think that yes. speaks to it right there. Well, before <laughs> yes. and before we move on about from skins, um, I want to put a little plug in for these videos that, one of our other uphill athlete coaches, Mike Foote, has made, and we've posted them on our website. For people, it's about transitions in skimo and the, the various types of transitions from you know, uh, uphill skinning to downhill skiing and that sort of thing, along with some pretty good tips on skin care and waxing skis and that sort of thing. So anybody who's interested in some of the finer points of that, um, take a look at those videos.
1: Yeah, they're great.
0: Um, and so, when you were, were some of these, like that, obviously not locking your heels or your uh, the boots down into downhill mode, you must have taken some spectacular falls. And once you fell, did you go, "Oh damn it! I forgot to lock my heels." Um, yes.
1: Yeah. Yes. Or another one similar to that is when you put a race suit on, you can knock the string around the cuff of the boot off, so the boot won't lock. It just seems like. Oh, yeah. Anything that will go wrong, anything that can go wrong will go wrong, and mm. it it feels like you do have to go through all the motions of all the things going wrong, so you learn the next time. Okay, when I put my race suit on, I need to make sure my boot locks um, before I get out on the race course because that's a that was a hard um, error to rectify in the middle of the race, once, and just yeah, such once a, just a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's really hard to ski without your boot locked.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe not for somebody who's used to skiing downhill on their cross-country classic yes. days where you have no lo- ankle support.
1: Exactly. I'd lost my touch from my classic downhill days. So um, yeah, I'm a little rusty.
0: Yes. Yeah, a little spoiled by that. Yeah. And yes. so that these did you end up, I'm kind of interested in the learning process here because with the technicality that's involved in this sport, you not only have the technicality, it's a little bit like, I mean, and from my perspective, having you know, been spent a lot of time in the cross country ski world, it's a little bit like, um, like biathlon in a way. You know, there's the whole technical aspect of actually being able to ski and ski well and perform well that way. But then you have all this other stuff that's around this piece of equipment, the gun, you know, how, you t- you know, how quickly you could take it off and put it back on, how you, you know, prepare yourself for that. So it has that, this sort of non-skiing component to the sport. In your case, it, you know, whether it's you know, the whole skinning and unskinning and, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of am- amazed at how all the technical complications involved in that and i'll I'll tell my own funny little brief story about schema which is um, we have a friend of ours or one of our coaches sam naney who is no longer coaching for us because he's now coaching a big cross-country ski team puts on a local schema race here and when he first got started i thought okay i haven't raced in, in 20 years okay i'm gonna go support sam and do this schema race and, of course, I knew, <clears throat> I knew nothing about it. And I wasn't really too worried about my performance. But I would get to the top of the hill, and there was a guy up there kind of monitoring to make sure everybody stayed on the course. And that was where we had to transition, take our skins off, and put them back on. And, of course, I did the normal thing I do when I'm back. I stop, stopped, take my skis off, pull the skins off, fold them up, put them on my pack. and, you know, and so, And Seth, who was up there monitoring – he Said, you know, you're taking two and a half minutes for your transition. The leaders are taking 15 seconds. <laughs> I went, okay, I guess I'm nothing I can do in this race is gonna matter compared to if I can't do better, do better. Trans- and I'd never practiced the transitions, of course. And so I'm sure you've had to spend a lot of time on those non skiing comp- parts of the sport.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think at one point, I made a shift from feeling sort of bothered by taking the time to perfect these, um, the technicalities, these, like the transitions and all the things you're referring to. And then at some point, a light bulb went off where I thought these, this is a great space for opportunity to get so much better Um, because I'm really, I don't have the biggest engine out on the field. I'm not the best downhill skier. I'm sort of middle of the pack, but if I could dial in this technical aspect and take the time and put in the energy, there's so much, um, there's so much room to, to gain time. And, um, these are efficiencies that don't require a lot of energy, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I realized I could incorporate practicing transitions on an easy ski day and go out and do say, I'll go out and do like 30 boot pack transitions in a row. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting looking at my heart rate, like if you're someone that is preoccupied with heart rate. It doesn't actually go down that much. If you're just fluidly practicing transitions, I think they're a great, that's a great thing you can incorporate within a workout. Yeah. Um, so I I switched, I switched my philosophy and dove into becoming, trying to become a true technician of the sport, which has been um, a good shift.
0: And was that part of what allowed you to move from the back to the middle and then finally to the front of the pack or or was it some more some uh let's say training changes you know uh, methodologies you used or or was it almost entirely due to these technical efficiencies uh
1: i think all of all of that i i started training with more intention um this was back when i first worked with a coach um and made Tremendous improvements just through having a coach, um, mm-hmm. learning about polarized training, and really, and even honestly, reading reading your books was was quite helpful to me. I had never even heard or understood much about training methodology until um, I got a hold of Training for the New Alpinism and was blown away by the content. So that was, I think, the the impetus behind really trying to up my game, and then that technicality piece came
0: later. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> how was the how is the competition on the is it a pretty friendly sport? Um, you know the the competitors you uh, know pretty supportive of one another and is it is you know is it welcoming to people?
1: Yeah you know I think as you said earlier it's a bit intimidating just the look of it. I mean the the spandex the gear it 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 doesn't feel terribly accessible especially um in comparison to other sports but really it's such a small sport it's so so small um especially compared to something like nordic skiing or running um and as such you really begin to get to know people within the community and um i think people would find it's far more accessible than it might appear up upon first glance so um i'd say people are, are quite friendly and um, you were we're typically poking fun at ourselves, like adults racing in spandex, like, come on. So many of us are older. Like I, I find it interesting that, um, the sport tends to have an older demographic. Uh, there's a lot of racers in their thirties, forties, fifties, even sixties, still very intentional and competing. So, mm-hmm. um, that's a unique trait about it.
0: That's cool. Yeah. And cross-country skiing has has some of that in, in you know, there's master's competition and age group competition. So, you know, everyone from eight-year-olds to 80-year-olds has a place in it. Um, It does get, pretty darn serious i have to say from my own experience it's maybe not the most welcoming thing for people but a lot of there there are especially at the higher levels i should say but you know there there are these races that are typically called kind of citizens races and they're just open to anyone to come and those in in those cases those are quite welcoming well when when you made the national team and you went over to europe what was your impression was that like suddenly jumping into the deep end of the pool or How did that go?
1: Yes, that was a very jarring experience for me. (laughs) Honestly, Scott, in a way it felt felt hard because I felt so out of my league. It was like I had no idea about the caliber of athlete. Like the Europeans were so evolved in comparison. And um, there were a few members of the U.S. team that I think we're we're certainly far more prepared than me. But so many of us were just new to what was going on. The sport's so much newer in the U.S. in comparison to Europe. So I think we're kind of behind the curve. I mean, I'm sure I could pick your brain all about this mirroring maybe Nordic and the way that the U.S. was um, slow to Nordic, but now probably you would say is a top contender in the sport. So I think we're in this transitional period where the U.S. is slowly getting better and better at ski mountaineering, but we're still a little behind the curve. Would you say that's the case?
0: Oh, definitely. I think there are great parallels in that regard. Um, but I also think one of the things that I noticed about cross-country skiing is it takes a number of years for, like when a, a top American makes the World Cup circuit and starts racing in Europe on the World Cup, they'll perform, they'll underperform there. Part of it, I think, is intimidation factor. Like you did, is like, oh my God, these people are incredibly fit. And what, I, but what I've noticed is that it takes several years for the American athlete to kind of get their feet under them. They'll get used to the travel, get used to the sleeping in a new hotel every week. Um, you know, the food, the language, the time change. There's just a million things, as well as. The competition, you know, it's so intense, and you know, there's literally, in, especially in some countries like in this, in Norway, where there will be hundreds of thousands of spectators lining the course, and that's kind of different from the feel from the U.S. And um, so, I, but I have noticed that those skiers that are able to, you know, keep their head above water just enough to either not lose their spot on the team, or lose their motivation and burn out because they're still placing 30th or 40th place um, in the World Cup races, they often, you know, kind of slowly chip away. And, you know, years later, they're up there knocking heads for, you know, top 10 positions. In some cases, we've, as you know, we've had medalists at the Olympics. um, But it took, you know, even Jessie Diggins, who is a, a remarkable skier, and she now is considered one of the best cross-country skiers around, um, her first few years on the World Cup were not that stellar. <laughs> you know, she she had to pay her dues, and so I think there's something to that, and it may be a lesson for the uh, Schemo community: is you you take someone who's a promising. Um, nationally competitive skier from the U S and you literally do throw them in the deep end of the pool, you better not expect them to, you know, be, you know, contending for top positions in that race, but you better be willing to invest and say, okay, this person has potential. We need to keep them here and foster this, um, learning and give them four or five years, uh, see what happens. And that's a, that's a big commitment on the sports part, the governing bodies part. It costs a lot of money. And sometimes you make the wrong choice and you find out a few years later, okay, this person did, did not go anywhere. They, they, it was either the intimidation factor. Um, I mean, it's these high-level competitive sports like this there's an awful lot of failure that goes on. You know, we, we, we like, we love to, to see the heroes and the winners and, you know, the, the, and glorify those people. But for every one of them, there's a few hundred people that failed and had to, had to suck it up and deal with that failure. They just weren't good enough. Something happened, who knows. But I do think that that lesson, there are enough parallels that that lesson is a, a good one. And you're- yeah. I would assume Joe is still the national team coach, is he? He is. Yep. And so he, he comes from a cross country background so you know the fact that he does have that background hopefully, hopefully he kind of understands that there's this is kind of a long-term investment in people.
1: Yes, I think he does. He sees that all well. He's actually headed over to Europe um I, to attend a world cup race or two with a few athletes so mm-hmm. yeah i think with that nordic background he does see this big picture of exactly what you're talking about yeah
0: yeah it's it's when you would you go from like in your case you went from a lark of you know, putting your skin skins on your cross-country skis to you know a few years later racing on the world cup that's, it's a cool story and it's a wonderful thing. And it's a testament to your, you know, I mean, you probably have some innate, you, you probably chose your parents' well so You probably have some pretty good genes <laughs> going for you. Um, I don't know. But I think also, it's
1: picking a small sport helps well, too. And,
0: and I'm firm believer that the beauty of endurance sports is it's really about perseverance. And you just have to be willing to put in the hard work for years and years and years. And almost everyone can make substantial gains. Yes. True. You might never stand on the top of a world cup podium, but that doesn't mean you can't get, you know, just as much pleasure out of the journey of improving year after year after year and, and coming up to a very high level, but it's I've never yet seen a non responder to endurance training which is kind of cool. And I think, it's, I think it's because of our evolutionary predisposition to endurance. You know, it's like running coaches have this old, old saying that they say, um, sprinters are born, distance runners are made. And so if you, didn't, if you didn't get born with the right genes, you will never be a sprinter. There's nothing we can do to make you a sprinter. But I have personal experience. I can turn a sprinter into a really good endurance athlete but you can never yeah. go the other way. and so everyone should take heart in this that you know be like nikki put your head down do the hard work stick through stick it out and you too will see some success.
1: You know, I Scott I just have to say I I feel like I'm an average athlete just to echo this. I don't actually think I have great genes. I think I just worked really hard for a number many 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 years. But what was motivating was seeing those gains year after year. It was, it was like, I would never even have thought of myself as an athlete or self described myself as an athlete in high school or college, but putting the time in using good methodology, um, and seeing progress and then evolving to, to getting to a place where I could be doing these really hard workouts. Like three by 20 minutes at threshold, something like that, where Mm -hmm. I never could have imagined doing that years ago, but to execute a workout like that well or execute a race while it felt addicting to me. I, Mm -hmm. I just loved, I loved seeing the potential I never thought I even had. So.
0: That's really, I, I love that kind of story. And that's so common in the endurance world. And I think people who are attracted to endurance sports tend to have that sort of you know, inner drive and motivation. You have to, or you won't make it at all because the bulk of the training that we do for endurance sports is pretty damn boring. You know, it's just, you've got to go out there and do that two hour run or whatever. And you're probably going to be by yourself there's nobody like in your spin class yelling at you to stand up and pedal harder or anything like that. You're just like, okay, when you come to this hill, it's you that has to tell you to go up that hill. And, but I think there's a certain type of people that are really attracted to that. And, and I certainly was. And I would put myself in that same category that you just did is, you know, I have, I've had a, a number of people say, oh, look at all the amazing things you've done athletically and climbing and skiing, and swimming and all this. And, and you must be you know, an incredible athlete. And on, I know that I'm not a particularly good athlete. Like the reason I ended up in endurance sports was I tried every skill sport there was. You know, I wanted to play basketball and baseball and football and all. And I was just a complete failure. And those are true athletic events. I mean, you have to be very athletic to do them. So I gravitated to this kind of sport that was, all it involved was a great deal of perseverance. And if, I think if people knew how hard I worked to do the, the rather modest accomplishments, I mean, maybe they're not modest to the average American, but on a you know, competitive sport spectrum, I was certainly middle of the pack um, at, the, at these higher levels. And I, I knew I would never have the ability to be at those higher levels but it took a hell of a lot of work for an awful lot of years to get to that point. And, you know, and I've, I've said this many times and Steve will back me up on it. Steve is not an exceptional athlete, but he has one of the strongest heads I've ever met. He's willing to suffer more than most people. And he's willing to do the hard work and just keep his head down and keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And so, and I've coached, I'll stop my monologue here in a second, but I have to say that I've had experience even with World Cup cross-country skiers, even at the highest level. I mean, please, people who were you know, finishing in the top five in the, in the World Cup, which for people that don't, don't understand that, that's a phenomenally high level. And I had one young woman that I coached since she was a young girl, um, 12 years old who ended up ranked for several years in a row, about, about fifth overall in the World Cup standings. And she was not a gifted athlete by any means. But she was also had that same kind of drive and motivation that I've seen in Steve and other endurance athletes that she just was willing to, to work harder than some of her competitors. But she was competing with people who she had no business really competing with. On a, on a, if, it, if it had come down to comparing genes you know, they, they would have, in fact, when she, one of the first tests she did with the U.S. ski team, they said, oh, you're never going to make it. You're no good. You don't have the right genetic material, basically. And, uh, I mean, she could have hung up her skis right then and there. But she was the kind of person that said, okay, I'm going to show you. And she did. She showed him. So I just think that I would like to get that message across to more and more people that, you know, yes, she probably never would have been a world champion. But being fifth in the world's not a bad place to end up. And you know in your case, you probably wouldn't be world champion either, but look at the experiences you've had and the level that you rose to, and there's so much potential for all of us that I think we are often you know cutting ourselves you know, we're, we're not giving ourselves enough credit for what we could.. Right.
1: do. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I cheer for the hard workers. yeah <laughs> the, the average the average Joe out there working hard. Those
0: yep. are my people. Yeah. I mean, it's wonderful to see those people who do the hard work and have the genetic gifts. You go, oh my God, that's just phenomenal. You know, looking at someone like Achillean, for instance, and you just think, mm. wow, that's that is truly what the human potential is. It may not be my personal potential or your personal potential, but it does give us an inspiration to realize we go, oh, I'm actually nowhere near the the you know that what I probably could do.
1: Right. Right. And thinking of Killian, you're right. It's like he, he had all, he has all the pieces to put them together to become yeah. like the highest world-class athlete, you know, there yeah. is, um, but he clearly works very hard and is yeah. gifted. So,
0: yeah. yeah. And, and I think there's a lot of, you know, the gen- genetics has given a lot of, uh, I think in some ways it's overrated because I think it's not just a question of nature versus nurture or your genes versus what you do. It's a combination. You know, we know that a lot of genes are expressed when you do certain types of training. And if you don't do that training, then those genes never get turned on and you never make those adaptations. So it's really a combination of your genetics and your training that, that and he just happened to be dealt a really good hand in the, on the genetics end of things. And and he was willing to go out and do a ton of hard work since he was, what, six years old. So that's... Right. Yeah. I
1: joked with um, a friend the other day about my... I think if I had any sort of natural disposition, it's to like tackle people. My dad was a collegiate football player <laughs> and I was a very aggressive soccer player. So I thought if they added a hand-to-hand combat portion oh, at yes. the end of a schema race... I think I could really be good, but I don't see that that happening, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I when I I feel like my genetic gift was ditch digging. I mean I can Ah. shovel. I can shovel like nobody's business for hours and hours at a time. And I'm thinking sometimes when I would be shoveling a lot, I'm thinking what a gift to have it given to be a good shoveler i mean why couldn't i have been like a, a musician or a sprinter or a mathematician or something like that instead no i'm just really good at shoveling
1: Oh, that's amazing
0: <laughs> and i and i stumbled onto this accidentally uh, that i turned out that i found oh wow this is everybody else would be getting tired and i'm going oh this isn't that hard i <laughs> just keep shoveling so, you need to
1: have a Mazama ditch digging competition.
0: Oh yeah, I would probably I I'd probably win my age group. Now that I'm getting older, I probably couldn't compete with the thirty year olds anymore. But uh, <laughs> um, oh, well, tell great. me a little bit about <laughs> how you have you've got two wonderful kids, and tell me how you have managed motherhood and training and racing and all that. So because I think that there's a lot to be learned for people in theirs? How do you balance your life with these athletic aspirations?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I, um, I This has been on my mind so much. I have a, uh, a three-month-old and a six-year-old, which is a pretty big gap um, and kind of an interesting family dynamic, but I think so much about time and how we use time and how, in a way I I read a book called 4,000 weeks about essentially how time in a way is fluid. And, um, it's like, when you add things into the bucket, other things have to go by the wayside, essentially, like there's only so much capacity we have. And if there's any lesson I've learned from motherhood and trying to reconcile motherhood with being an athlete, it's that I have to become a master of my own time. Um, that's really where there's the most, um, the sticking point is time. And, um, for me right now, that is reconciling breastfeeding with training. Um, and that's kind of a moving target day by day. Um, and something that's pretty difficult. I could go on and on about that. I won't, (laughs) but it's, um, it's like these tricky realities of, um, if I feed a baby at 4 a.m., I probably need to get up and go ski and go train at 4 a.m., even though I'd probably prefer to go at 6. Um, so there's a lot of maybe... Is, you're,
0: is that because you're awake and kind of ready to... I mean, you're ready to start your day, even though it's too early to start a day? And if yeah, you go back I, to bed, you might not fall asleep and yeah.
1: Well, that and also my, my body has my body and a baby has a certain timeline and I'm always yeah. having to reconcile my timeline um, with breastfeeding, a baby's timeline with training. And it's like, I have certain time windows. So, um, I think it's, I have to make the choice day, day after day to make it happen. And that I have a very finite amount of time and a very specific time of the day that I need to get out and do it if it matters to me. Um, so I think about the days before I had kids, when I would waffle around on a Saturday to, you know, delay going out, on a run, I drink breakfast, maybe have another, or eat breakfast, have another cup of coffee. And that does not exist in my <laughs> life anymore. Yeah. But in a way that's a gift because, um, I really just have no choice, but to make it happen when I make training happen when I can. So, um,
0: yeah. It, do you, did you find, I, I've, I've seen this with a couple of Nordic skiers, women, Did did you find your stamina, your ability to, your work capacity improved or stayed the same or decreased after childbirth?
1: I'm not totally sure. I I think right now I'm in the middle of an experiment um, diving back into training. It's funny, Scott, I did a race yesterday. So I'm about three, three and a half months postpartum. I did a little uphill ski mountaineering race and I did really well, kind of out of the blue, and I'm—I don't know if that's <clears throat> some of the magic of more blood volume. I don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. I mean, you hear about women doing well. You could probably explain this, Scott, because this is this is. i not, but
0: yeah, this. The women in training is a little bit of a black box for me. So, I mean, I have coached a lot of girls and into womanhood while they were racing, um, but I have to confess that I don't think I'm the best coach for females. I uh, not that I I don't love them. I mean, I'm you know, I love women, and I think it's fabulous to see what women can now do. When I was your you know younger, women couldn't do this stuff. You know, it just wasn't available to them, and and, and I feel bad for you know women who are my age now who went through high school with no sports opportunity at all, you know no opportunity to be involved in it so um, but i i don't really understand women in training probably as well as I should when I was coaching cross country skiing. I tended to train the girls like I trained the guys, um, obviously you know, we had you know the occasional Girls, the t- team would show up for practice and after school, and we'd have the occasional you know, menstrual crisis. What are the girls breaking down, crying? And you know, I had to deal with those kind of things, but I didn't really understand the the whole hormone and you know the cycles, and and so I'm, I'm I, I wish I did know more, but I don't. Um, but I I have my, my observation with only a handful of women who were involved at a fairly high level in cross-country skiing was that they came back from pregnancy stronger than they went into it. They had experiences. One woman, um, this was quite a few years, it's probably 30 years ago now, she had a child and then went on to the Olympics and it was her best World Cup performances ever by a yeah. long shot. You know, and, she, and if she was like you, just a few months postpartum when she was racing. And so I don't know what what, does that other than, you know, the common understanding is at least my very crude and simple understanding is it has to do with blood volume. You've got more oxygen carrying capacity. It's a little, it's like natural blood doping in a way. Um, Right. But anyway, I'm just curious if you had that experience. It sounds like maybe you just witnessed it. You just saw that yesterday in the race, perhaps.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a little... Yeah, because it's a little race series where you know who you're around, like you're Mm -hmm. generally around these people. And I had done it two weeks ago and two weeks before that. And I've just been sort of slowly but surely making my way up through the pack. Um, And that might just be my fitness coming back around. But I do I am trying to research this a bit more. And it's, it's, I'm a bit hard pressed to find good data. Maybe I'm looking in the wrong places. But um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting coming back.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure you're right, though. You probably, you know, you, you had a layoff probably at least during the final weeks of your pregnancy from much training, and then for the first few weeks back, you probably were not doing a lot of training. I know when you came here, you were, when, when you came to our coaches meeting here in October, how, how, when, how, how late, how far after you had the baby was that?
1: That was five weeks postpartum. Yeah, yeah, pretty soon.
0: So you probably weren't out doing two-hour runs and interval sessions and that sort of thing at that point. No. So you haven't had a lot of time to kind of whip yourself back into shape. But that's another thing I think is worth mentioning to our audience is that when you've trained a long time and achieved a, a certain level of fitness and then you have a break, whether it's an illness or a broken leg or, you know, work commitments or family commitments and you lose, you know, sometimes months of training. It's surprising how fast that comes back. And the, the the reason for it is, I mean, I've written about this in the books, but I'll, I'll just say it real quickly here. The reason for it is those years and years or months and months of training that you have been putting in have caused certain adaptations that are known as structural adaptations. In other words, you've grown new structures in your body, you know, whether they're muscle cells or mitochondria or, um uh, let's say capillaries around the blood, the muscles, um, heart, vo- heart muscle uh, hypertrophy. There's all those kinds of things take place and they're going to be there for, for basically forever. Not in the mitochondria, they tend to go away, but the others will stay. And the thing that you lose in this layoff are what are known as functional adaptations. And that is the function of those structures decreases because you're not using them at the same level and those are primarily enzymatic so you stop training and your body goes oh i guess we don't need all these aerobic enzymes anymore and starts shedding them doesn't produce new ones but those functional changes are very rapid to come back and that's why after a long layoff people will find yeah maybe the first week or two you're not going to feel like yourself but very rapidly you'll begin to go oh Actually, I guess I'm getting back into shape, and it's because those functional adaptations happen so fast um, mm-hmm. but it's it's also a cool thing for even for someone like me it, you know at a much older age than you is that I've retained those structural adaptations that I've built my whole life um, unfortunately they're still not very fast, but <laughs> i <I've, laughs> I can at least get out there and do it but oh yeah um, so the the, you must also have a very supportive spouse to do some of this kind of stuff. Even before you had children, I would suppose, Brad was probably you know, there cheering you on on the sidelines when you're racing and helping you pre-race support. Is that true?
1: Yeah. Yes. He's very supportive and we work to be supportive to one another. I mean, he's an athlete too. Um, I I think we're in different places in our athlete journey. I'm a little more... Um, I haven't let go of racing yet. I, I, I'm i 37 and I question how long I should be really focused on it, but I, I'm still loving it and still feeling competitive. So I'm hanging in there till um, I feel like I might need to pivot at some point. And Brad's, he raced more when he was younger and he has a way longer background of sport. So I think he kind of fizzled out from racing, but he's interested in doing like the bike packing, the the Colorado trail race backpack or bikepacking race. Mm-hmm. And um, he's doing like a stage race, mountain bike race. And I signed up for some races this summer. So it's a lot of needing to be on the same page to make both of our sporting dreams a reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're a good team. Yeah.
0: So, yeah. I think you have to have that. So I would assume that you kind of with childcare, you say okay brad you've got these two hours on tuesday and i get my two hours on wednesday and we swap back and forth like that
1: yes yes precisely we have mornings he goes early or i go early or weekends where yeah we're just constantly going back and forth alternating trying to make it happen for both of us
0: oh, that's i think that's yeah, obviously partnerships like that are wonderful to have a not only a someone who's, you know, you're in love with, but also who is a great partner for you and a good friend and all that. So that's wonderful. Yeah. Do you foresee your, your daughters wanting to race? Do you think that might be what they want to follow in mom's footsteps?
1: <laughs> you know, I, I'm a keen believer in letting them pursue whatever their little hearts desire. But um I'd say so far, Penny, our six-year-old, she's pretty athletic and seems she's really loves climbing and it's fun to watch. I think she's a better climber than me now. Um Mm -hmm. she likes to give me tips, which is funny. Actually when she was climbing with you and Steve, we were trying to nudge her to give um especially Steve some advice. (laughs) We thought that would be (laughs) pretty cute if she told Steve House how to rock climb. But um (laughs) Mm -hmm. so um no, she loves climbing and but at you know at times she's she is a six year old. She doesn't always want to do it and she loves drawing and she loves, um, she's really into like engineering and deconstructing things. So oh. she's a pretty um, dynamic kid. It's fun to watch, yeah. see what she at that, gravitates at that age, towards.
0: A lot of changes going on day to day at that age. Yeah.
1: Yes, yes, yep.
0: well, yeah. Well, I, I, I would imagine growing up in a very sports oriented town like Breckenridge she'll have a lot to choose from in terms of so what sort of activities she does want to pursue
1: oh yeah yes maybe she'll be a swimmer like you Scott she likes swimming too
0: oh yeah is there (laughs) it it must be a pool then in Breckenridge yes at a rec center okay all right yeah that's great that's a tough place to train at 9,000 feet (laughs) yes
1: Yeah, our house is at 10. It's pretty high up. Oh, my goodness.
0: Yeah. Wow. So good (laughs) altitude training or altitude uh, acclimatization, I should say. Indeed. Yes. Well, I don't want to take up too much of the rest of your day. This has been really fun, Nikki. Do you have anything we haven't covered that you wanted to talk about at all?
1: Well, I want to ask you a bunch of questions. I really look forward to the day that we can have a dedicated Scott Your background is so fascinating with sport, but much beyond sport, too. So, um, I'm hoping that'll be in the pipeline.
0: Well, you know, I'm okay. I'm going to say that for the people who are listening, I want Nikki to start doing some of her own podcasts for us so that I'm not the only one happy to do them. I mean, I love doing them. I love talking to these people. <clears throat> it's great stories, but I kind of think people get a little tired of hearing my stories over and over again. So I, I think it would be great to have some new blood on the podcast front. So I'm looking forward to your, um, your doing some podcasts. And if you want to rake me over the coals in one of your podcasts, I would be very happy to do so.
1: Oh, I'd love it. It's like you've lived 10 lives. There's so much to your story. It's fantastic.
0: (laughs) Thanks. Thanks
1: a lot. You know, I, I guess my takeaway as, um, given everything we've been talking about is really trying to understand. I've been thinking a lot about what motivates people to race. And I think that ego or identity getting caught up in racing. Um, and I think I've had a breakthrough and really not allowing my identity to rest in sports so much and in my performance or in my, um, my race results so much. And I, I think just um, being a newer coach, I can see this imposter syndrome for lack of a better term as a theme kind of running through, um, the athletes I coach. And even the way I feel myself of, of not feeling worthy or adequate, um, or, that they have the right, you know, physiological gifts to be doing these or having these aspirations they have. Um, and I've really come to have a way better perspective about the way that sport just needs to be something fun and thinking about the gifts it's given me, um, the discipline that it's taught me and, um, how it's demonstrated me, demonstrated to me that hard work really pays off. Um, but not allowing my full identity and self worth resting in, in, in outcomes. So I've just thinking, been thinking a lot about that, and I'm sure you have a lot to say about that is, too. Is that
0: a rel- is that a recent thing? Is it happened maybe since the second child, or is, is I wondered if it, it's a maturity thing, or you have a you have a real perspective on life now. You, you're a mother with children that is way more important than some silly ski race, right? And yes. so you kind of put that stuff into perspective and, and I, I certainly know, and I think especially young people involved in sports and you're training, you know, hours and hours a day for years and years and years, you, that you, that is your identity. And I've known an awful lot of high level cross country skiers that when they stopped competing, they were a, kind of a mess because yes. that, that had been their identity for 15 plus years. And all of a sudden it's gone and people don't recognize them as anything other than a cross country skier. And as we know, celebrity, and especially in a sport like cross country skiing, it's very fleeting. You know, it doesn't last very long, but you your old news next year, you know, the fact that you're not skiing anymore, it's like, oh, they forget you. So, and that's a hard thing. It's hard on your ego for sure. And I certainly know I was caught way up in that, whether it was in my swimming career or my skiing career or my climbing career. I had that same ego driven thing because I was very competitive person. And it, like you, it didn't really happen until later in life for me to realize, Oh, you know, this is actually not that big of a deal. And, you know, and you just need to be, you need to really just enjoy what you're doing and you'll get the pleasure out of it without, and, and beating yourself up over failures. Like when I was coaching my skiers, and of course, I'm out on the course with them. I'm at the start finish area because we usually had a wax table set up for last minute wax changes and stuff. And I'd be out there and they all leave their duffel bags around where I was. And <clears throat> they come back after the race. And if they had a bad race, I'd let them pout for, I said, okay, you got 10 minutes to pout. <clears throat> and then it's over. You forget that race because we're moving on to the next race. And you know, there's nothing we can do now about the race. We can, after you get done pouting, then come back to me and let's talk about what went wrong or what went right in the race, and see if we can learn a few things from that. But in, initially, the emotions are so high after the race, and you know and they're so fraught with distress that they didn't win or whatever it was that you can't really reason with them, and it's just better to say, okay, you got ten minutes to pout, then come back and let's talk. Um, and I think that's that ego thing. You know, we all have it, and it's undeniable, but it's best if you could try to some way diffuse it. Like that was my attempt to sort of diffuse it. It's like, go away. I don't want to talk to you for 10 minutes because you know what we're doing out here matters to no one but you and maybe yes. and your parents or a close group of friends. That's it. That's all who only people that care. Um, the rest of the world doesn't give a shit about what you're doing. So you right. need to face up to the reality of that. <laughs> um, and whether you climb this mountain or whether you run this race or whether you get 48th or four or eighth. Nobody cares, really. But Yes. And this I think is my motto. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just think that's a hard, hard thing to learn. It's one of those lessons that takes a lot of time to kind of decouple yourself from that, that your, your view of what you think you should be in terms of your, your and, and how you want people to identify you.
1: Yes that would, that's what I would say I let go of is it, it was this work to sort of manage my identity as an athlete. And, um, one thing I sort of forced myself to do postpartum the second time around with kid two is just dive back into racing. And I know, of course, I'm not going to perform that well. I'm i not, I'm not in shape. I, um, I'm not sleeping a lot, um, for a number of reasons, but that doesn't even matter. I mean, as long as I'm racing on my terms and that's all. It's like, we all, we have all the power to, mm-hmm. to make sport be what it, what it should be and what we want it to be in our lives. Yeah. And that felt so liberating to me to realize that if I go to a race, I don't even need to justify my performance to anybody. Yeah. I don't need to tell anyone I just had a baby. I can just go and it can be what I want it to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that just took all this pressure and tension off of racing and it's it feels like now i can just go and enjoy myself um i mean i i, I don't think it's this this absolute switch over but mm-hmm. currently i'm finding new space to be in with it and it, it's felt really nice so yeah, i'm excited I, I about bet that
0: that is an enormous uh gain for you and you know it obviously shows a great deal of like uh, emotional maturity i think to to be able to you know None of us, I think. Maybe if you're some sort of um, Buddhist monk, you can do this. I certainly can't. Totally detach ourselves from our ego. I mean, I'm. You know, we all have it. It's there for us. But being able to at least sort of step outside yourself for a second and look at this foolish thing we're doing, and 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 that we call life, and go, okay, this is if if it's not fun or if you can't poke fun at yourself. I mean, it's like you were saying. This group, the small group of. Of uh, skiers that get together, they all know each other. They poke fun at, at what they do, and even one another probably sometimes. And and that keeping it in that that light that way, I think it makes it so much more rewarding than to have your entire life focused on this one moment that may go right or may go wrong, and in some cases, out of your control, things out of your control. And and if that. Is all your life is revolved around when this thing does go wrong, which oftentimes it does. That's an incredible blow. That that I think is like self-imposed. We don't need to be suffering over that, but a right. lot of people, a lot of people do. I certainly can I have. Ask you, I can speak yeah. firsthand. I've been I've been <laughs> I've been a poster child for that sort of thing, so yes, I can speak can, with authority about how bad it is.
1: <laughs> I know Scott. Could you talk just just while we're on this topic? about when you, um, and I probably won't get the story just right, but when you were swimming and you got the flu, was it during the Olympic trials? No, or it was Can right you before. just tell that
0: yeah.
1: Will you tell that story? Because I'd be curious to hear how you came away from that experience of what I'm sure felt like a, a major missed opportunity due to illness.
0: Yeah, it, I mean, I performed very poorly. This was 1972. Um, didn't make the Olympic team. Um, and I'm not sure I would have made it even if I'd swum my best, who knows? That was the year Mark Spitz won pretty much every event. So (laughs) there was a, there was one guy already on the team who was going to do all, could do all these events. But nonetheless, I had trained really hard and really well. And you know, I have to confess, I have a propensity I'll always have over my life to overtrain because I, like you have that imposter syndrome. It's like, I'm not good enough. And so I always had to do the extra and push myself extra hard, which is, you know, I try I've written copious words about overtrading now because of the lessons I learned from my own personal experience. And it was because my ego was caught up in it, you know, and I, I wanted to be something that I probably didn't have the, the the machinery to be, but I just kept pushing myself. And in this case, I pushed myself to the brink of getting pneumonia, you know, a week or so before the trials. And I went there and swam poorly. And, um, and it was an interesting thing for me because that was when I, I, I was only, let's see, in 72, I would have been, I think I was 18. Yeah, I was just out of high school. Um, and I'd spent a, a year at the Air Force Academy um, right before this. And, and then I dropped out of the Air Force Academy and I kind of swam a bit and I wasn't sure what to do with my life, basically. And <clears throat> swimming had been such a key component for so long. I just like, that was my, my rudder. And it kept me on this. I mean, I would have probably ended up in juvie if i hadn't been for swimming. Um, that's for people that are juvenile hall. That's where they put the bad kids. Um, anyway, so when that happened, and I didn't realize if, you know, if I had a, you know, some guidance from an older, more wiser person, I would they would have said, hey, you know, it's only four more years to the next Olympics you know, why don't we focus on that? But at 18, it seemed like the world was over. It's like, okay, I'm done with swimming. And so what I did after that was I just, I went out and essentially prostituted myself with my swimming career and got a, a full scholarship to a division one school and swam there feeling like, okay, I'm never gonna be what I hoped to be in swimming, but I could use swimming to put me through college. And that's, so that's what I did. Um, I didn't love it anymore though. You know, I, I, you know, swimming was work. And it was during that time when I discovered cross-country skiing because the swimmers at the University of Colorado shared the locker room with the cross-country skiers. And I remember walking into, I had skied most of my life at that point, but I, we're getting it. Nikki, we should save this story for next, our, our little, I'll, okay. I'll wrap it up. When we'd walk in, I'd walk into the locker room. And that time, all the skiers were, were, were recruited from Norway. So there was no Americans on the, on the CU ski team. And we'd walk in and, and their, their ski tips would be sticking up out of the lockers because they're so they're, everybody skied on 210 centimeter skis back then. <laughs> And, and I was going, oh, those are weird-looking skis. And I got to talking to these Norwegian guys, and then they started taking me out skiing. And I go, oh, my God, this is so much cooler than looking at the bottom of a pool for four or five hours a day. And I just, like, I'm done with swimming. I'm, I'm just so done with swimming. So that was, you know, so, you know, so the, the, the failure of not making that Olympics and the, uh, but the, you know, the change that created in my life was what took me to skiing. So in a way, you know, it was, and it was a great thing. I mean, I'm not sure I could have handled four more years of of the, you know, five hours a day. I'm just not Mm. sure I had the the mental wherewithal to keep doing that to myself. Sure. Swimmers work really hard. I mean, I think all endurance athletes do, but swimmers put in just a prodigious amount of training because they can, because you're, you're horizontal, so your heart doesn't have to work as hard to pump the blood around your body. You're being cooled by the water, so you know, heat gets dissipated much faster than you know when you're running, let's say, or skiing. And so you can do a lot of hard work as a swimmer because of those two factors. And I think that's every, every former swimmer I've ever met is so tough mentally because you're just like year after year after year of that kind of hard workouts does that to you. But right. we can save those stories for another time.
1: Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm going to hold you to that.
0: Okay. All right. Well, Nikki, this has been really fun. Thanks for taking the time. I'll let you get back to your kids and your husband. I'm sure. And, um, yes. And I'm sure we'll be chatting very soon. So,
1: okay, Scott. Thank you. That was great.
0: Thanks for joining us today. For more information about what we do, please go to our website, uphillathlete.com.